Hi, I'm Alyssa Milano, and this is Sorry Not Sorry. Hello, everyone, and welcome to a special live edition of Sorry Not Sorry. To those of you in our virtual studio audience, thank you so much for being here. And if you're listening in after the fact, we're using the audio directly from the live stream. So if it sounds a little different than our normal episodes, that is why. I am very excited today to be joined by Congressman John Sarbanes of Maryland's 3rd Congressional District. He's the lead sponsor of H.R. 1, the For the People Act. This act, for those of you that don't know, corrects so many critical shortcomings and vulnerabilities in our election system and is one of the most important pieces of legislation in a very, very long time. Audience, if you would like to submit a question for Congressman Sarbanes about H.R. 1, you can do so by clicking Ask a Question at the bottom of your screen. And Congressman, welcome. Thank you so, so much for being here. Thanks. It's great to be here. First, I mean, there's so much to get into, but first, can you just give us a rundown of some of the problems in our electoral system? Yeah, there's a lot of problems. First of all, If you look at what happened last November, I think that was the American people pulling our democracy back from the brink. But to do it, they had to fight their way to the ballot box. It was not easy. And some of the problems we see is it's still too difficult to get registered in America. There's still a lot of voter suppression that happens. It's too way too complicated. I mean, when you get up in the morning and you're your goal for the day is to go vote. You don't want that to be a trial. You want it to be a triumph. But unfortunately, there's a lot of hoops people still have to jump through. So that's one of the big things HR1 is trying to address. We'll talk about that more, but just to deal with voting. So that's, that's one part of what we're trying to address. The other big thing is just the way money has way, way too much influence in mm-hmm. our politics, in the way we govern. Most people in the country feel like there's a bunch of insiders that call the shots in Washington when it comes to how policy and laws get made. And it's the deep-pocketed donors, it's the PACs, it's the lobbyists. And people are right about that. I mean, that's, that's the way it's been for too long. So we want to push back on this money influence. We want to get people, everyday people, right in the back, right back in the middle of their democracy where they belong, where they can compete for the attention of candidates and lawmakers and where their priorities are the ones that carry the day. So there's a lot in H.R. 1 that, that deals with voting and making it easier to register and vote in America. There's a lot that deals with fighting the influence of big money. And then we have provisions that deal with, you know, just acting ethically and transparently. I mean, when you go to Washington, you should behave yourself as lawmakers. That's that's a minimum expectation I think the public has. And we got a lot of rules in there to make sure that that's exactly what's happening. So there's a lot that's broken 
Alyssa, in our democracy that needs to be fixed, H.R. 1 can do that, but we got to get over the finish line. I mean, let's unpack a little bit what you said. Okay, you said November we were pulling our democracy back from the brink and that this bill will make voting accessible to everyone and get money out of politics and make things more transparent and get corruption out of politics. I mean, those are those are some really big issues. I have so many questions about how we got here, but I just want you to, to really break down for my listeners how these problems impact our lives on a daily basis. So let's let's chip away at like the, the big, huge umbrella of democracy, because I think, you know, when people are struggling to put food on the table, that's a concept that that is is something that seems bigger mm-hmm. than what their lives really allow. So let's get into a little bit how these problems impact our lives. All right. Well, let me take an example. Great. Um, the chemical industry has way too much influence on how policy gets made in Washington. That affects everybody. I was at a I was at a gathering of some sort of thirty something tech folks a few years ago, and we were talking about this topic of money in politics. The eyes were starting to glaze over a little bit, and then I saw one of the participants there with a stroller with her child in the stroller, and I said, "I bet you care about the toys that you're." your child puts in his mouth when he's Mm. playing. And she said, absolutely, I do. I said, well, then you need to understand that we don't know a lot about the chemicals that go into those plastic toys because the chemical industry for years has been paying lobbyists and making campaign contributions to stop legislation that would create more transparency. So that's a perfect example of how the influence of money relates to what's happening in people's daily lives. You talked about people putting food on the table. A few years ago, the Republicans, with their H.R. 1, which was the tax scam, passed a bill that sent 83% of the benefits of that to big corporations and wealthy Americans. Well, that meant they were taking resources away from families out there that are struggling to get food on the table. Mm. And a lot of those Republican lawmakers were being very honest and saying, and we have direct quotes, Lindsey Graham and others saying that they were hearing from their donors, if you don't pass this tax bill, don't ever expect to get another dollar from us. So that was an example of where big money donors were pulling the strings to try to get tax breaks in place for themselves and leaning on lawmakers and legislators to go vote for something that was not in the best interest of the broad American people. So folks are getting smart about this. They're connecting the dots. They know the oil and gas industry is leaning in to stop legislation to deal with climate change. They know Wall Street is leaning in to stop fair tax policy that can help Americans across the country. They know the chemical industry doesn't want transparency. They know the pharmaceutical company has three lobbyists for every member of Congress on Capitol Hill because they don't want legislation that could reduce the cost of prescription drugs. All of these things are things that affect people in their daily lives, and we're not getting the policy we need because the big money is calling the shots. We have to change that. 
HR1 does a lot that pushes back on the influence of big money and makes it so that the priorities of everyday people are the ones that carry the debt. like we should start making our elected officials wear like NASCAR suits just to say who contributed to their campaigns, uh, you know, what, what, who they're in bed with, um, because it doesn't take, you know, someone with, with a political science major to realize that this is, if someone is contributing, if a, if a pharmaceutical company is contributing to our elected officials campaigns or giving money to them, Obviously, there's going to be a conflict of interest when these people actually vote for bills that might impact their donations. Um, so my question to you is, like, how are we just addressing this now? Are these new issues? Um, and, and where and when did these problems start? These aren't new issues. I mean, look, um, big money's been influencing our politics for a long, long time. It's just gotten worse and I think more deeply offensive to the average person. These super PACs that came into being after the Citizens United case, you know, a little over right. 10 years ago, they really kind of raised the profile on how much money is determining outcomes in America. And it really frustrates and angers the average person. I mean, you're sitting there in your kitchen, you're watching television, you see these ads come on, um, from places you don't even know where the money is coming from and it's influencing politics and you're sitting there and you feel like you don't matter anymore. Like mm. how can you compete with the Koch brothers? Um, right. How can you compete with all of this big money out there? Well, look, I've always thought that 300 million Americans, um, if they wanted to step up, push back, could be stronger than the Koch brothers or anybody else. And we've, we've brought a lot of that into HR one. Let me tell you some of the things we've done. Please. Number one, we would require disclosure of where this big money is coming from, this secret money that's pouring billions of dollars into our politics every two years, and it's completely unaccounted for. So we would, you know, open up the curtain on that. We would shine a light so that people know, hey, this is where that money's coming from. Second thing we would do is there's, a, there's an agency in Washington called the Federal Election Commission, and it's supposed to be there to be the cop on the beat to blow the whistle when the big money actors aren't playing fairly, right? But it's broken right now. The commission doesn't work. It's dysfunctional. It's deadlocked, etc. So in H.R. 1, the For the People Act, we would completely overhaul that agency, make sure that it can do its job, blow the whistle, be the referee, so when these big super PACs are leaning in on our democracy, they can say, step back, don't do that, mm -hmm. and stand up for the people out there. Third thing we do, this is the thing I'm most excited about. We would create a whole new way of funding campaigns in America, congressional campaigns. Right now, if you want to be successful as a candidate for Congress, on average, you got to raise $1.7 million every two years 
to run a campaign. Where are you going to get the money? Well, the PACs have the money. The corporations mm -hmm. have the money. The big mm -hmm. donors have the money. And they're very happy to give you that money. But they want something in return. Right. We need to find a different way of funding campaigns so that candidates and members of Congress don't have to go hat in hand to the lobbyists on K Street and the big money crowd. They can power it a different way. So what will we do? We set up a small donor matching system. And we say that if candidates for Congress are willing to abide by certain rules, don't take traditional PAC money, limit their high donations, then they can qualify for a system where every small donation they collect get multiplied six times. So what does that mean? That means instead of going up to K Street to raise $10,000 at a 20-minute lunch with a bunch of lobbyists, you can have a, an event in your district, grassroots. Right. You get 30 people to show up. They each give $50, which is what they can afford. You get a six-to-one match on that. You've just raised $10,000 by spending time with real people in your district, listening to their concerns and their priorities. And that makes you competitive to run for Congress. So I think what will happen with this system is a lot of candidates who now, they have no choice. They got to go to the big money to run their campaigns. Mm -hmm. They'll say, you know what? Mm -hmm. Let me step into this new system, small donor matching system, power my campaign that way. And then the only people I owe, the only yeah. people I serve, are everyday Americans, not the lobbyists and the PACs. That's a great system, and that's part of HR1. That is a really important system because, I mean, most people that I know in, in Congress um, are fundraising 80% of the time because they have to raise a certain amount of money. And, you know, what that does, it takes them out of their district, right? And so I think that's super important. I also... I want to I want to dig into gerrymandering a little bit because I I really think it's a concept that might be hard for a lot of people to grasp who don't live in the political world but with the census done you know it is such a huge problem that we are about to face so can you just give us a, an overview of gerrymandering and what the for the people act does to address it So every 10 years Alyssa based on the new census we have to go out and redraw congressional district lines. The reason is that under the Constitution, every member of Congress is supposed to represent roughly the same number of constituents. So over the course of 10 years, obviously, people move around, things shift, and so things get out of alignment. So, you know, my, my district may end up representing 100,000 more than the district next to mine because people have moved since the census was done 10 years ago. So when we do the census, we go through this process of what's called reapportionment, where you figure out, okay, what's the new number of constituents that each member of Congress is supposed to represent? And then you have to go draw new district boundaries to account for that number. Well, that process of drawing boundaries can be a very political process. And what people don't like is they feel oftentimes that the lines are being drawn not for the benefit of the constituents, but for the benefit of the particular member of Congress. So, for example, that member of Congress may say, hey, I don't want a very political or 
competitive district, so I want to draw the lines to get a certain kind of constituents in my district, and then other members do the same thing, and then the public feels disrespected. So that also means that in these states that are controlled by one party or the other, because that's where the lines get drawn, you get some really strange-looking districts and very mm -hmm. partisan districts. So you have states, for example, where Democrats win a majority of the votes in a congressional election. But when you see how the lines get drawn, the Republicans actually end up getting a majority of the seats in that district. So there's something that's out of kilter here. What we want to do with HR1 is create independent redistricting commissions across the country in every state that would draw these congressional district lines objectively, fairly, in a way that keeps communities of interest together and respectfully of the voters. And I think that would be a huge step forward because it would do two things. It would make the voters feel like we respect them, which is key. But it would also mean that when it comes time to have elections, the people that get elected and sent to Washington actually fairly represent what's going on in terms of the voters in that state instead of it being out of balance. And so that is a very key reform and a fundamental way of saying to the voters, your voice matters. We're going to do this system in a way, again, that respects you and puts you ahead of the politicians. So that's critical reform. There's been some misinformation about this bill circulating out there. What are some of the biggest misconceptions? Well, I mean, some of the attacks you see are that, you know, somehow we're trying to federalize elections with the reforms we want to put in place, you know, automatic voter registration, same day, mail-in voting, early voting, all these kinds of things. No, we're just trying to set some baseline standards that then the states figure out how to meet those standards. And we're doing it for federal elections, okay? So we have absolute authority under the Constitution, Congress does, to regulate what happens in federal elections. Now, as a practical matter, if states are required to do certain things for federal elections, they'll probably do those for the state elections also because it's just more efficient to do things that way. But this is about creating uniform standards. Alyssa, America should be the gold standard when it comes to voting. Instead, we're lagging behind a lot of our peer nations around the world. That's nuts. I mean, it's been 50 years since John Lewis shed blood on the Edmund Pettus Bridge, marching for the right to vote. And still people can't get to the ballot box without it being an ordeal for too many of them out there. So this is something we have to do. And setting those minimum standards is a way um, to achieve it. But on your broader point, to be honest, when you do polling, a broad majority of Americans of all political stripes support the reforms in H.R. 1, these are not controversial things. Right. Fixing voting in America is not controversial. Insisting on ethics and accountability from lawmakers is not controversial. That's like a minimum expectation. Fighting back against the big money and the corruption 
that has infected our politics and the way policy gets made in Washington? That's not controversial. Everybody wants to see that fixed. The problem, Alyssa, is they don't believe it can happen because they've heard for years about how we're going to fight corruption, we're going to fix this system, then it never happens. Well, we have a chance now with H.R. 1. I mean, we don't have to go invent these reforms. They're all there in one package. And if we could get it done, I think it would send a powerful message to Americans. We hear you. We trust you. We respect you. Doesn't mean overnight their cynicism is going to suddenly disappear and their faith in government and politics is going to be suddenly restored. But we will be on a path back to where people feel like their democracy works for them again. That's what's at stake with H.R. 1. You mentioned uh, John Lewis, and we have a question from our audience um, from C. Houston. What is the difference between the John Lewis Voting Rights Act and the For the People Act that was already passed by the House? Is there a way to merge the two acts or to pass both in order to ensure that we pay homage to John Lewis, a legendary civil rights icon? It's a great question. We have to pass both H.R. 1 and H.R. 4. They're proceeding on different tracks only because H.R. 4, which is the John Lewis Voting Rights Advancement Act, it would restore the protections of the 1965 Voting Rights Act that the Supreme Court took away in the Shelby case. That has to be on its own track because we have to build an evidentiary record with hearings and testimony about all these voter suppression things going on around the country because... That bill will get challenged. There will be a legal challenge. And the Supreme Court will hear that case. And the Supreme Court has told Congress, you better have a good record to support that bill or we're going to strike it down. So that's going to take a little bit longer. We need to go do those hearings um, in Congress to make sure that we have a strong record to support the Voting Rights Act. H.R. 1 can come out of the gate right away because it's not subject to that evidentiary record requirement. It's doing a broader set of, set of reforms. Um, so the idea is if we can pass H.R. 1, that puts momentum behind H.R. 4. It frankly, puts momentum behind H.R. 51, which is D.C. statehood. All of these things are kind of connected conceptually. The idea is, again, lift up people's voices everywhere we can in this country. So H.R. 1, H.R. 4 very much work together, moving along on parallel tracks. Each act, each adds power and force to the other and helps cre- create momentum uh, for this change. What's great is John Lewis is at the center of both of them. Mm-hmm. His name is attached, as it should be, to the Voting Rights Advancement Act. The legislation he introduced, five Congresses in a row, the Voter Empowerment Act, is the first title of H.R. 1. All those things I mentioned, the automatic voter registration, same day, mail-in voting, uh, early voting, those are all John Lewis proposals 
that he that he introduced for years and years and years. So John Lewis is at the center of both of these key pieces of legislation. Mm. And it occurs to me that since Georgia was the state that gave Democrats the gavel back in the United States Senate, we kind of owe it to John Lewis to make sure that his legacy is cemented with passage of these bills. And we're going to do it in the House. And then on the Senate side, it's a trickier path because of the filibuster. But I think they need to make it happen over there and get this to Joe Biden's desk so he, with one stroke of the pen, can start to fix our democracy in fundamental ways. I think we have the time for one more question. Uh, And this one comes from Robin. Um, And it's a good question. It's something that I hear quite a bit. Um, H.R. 1 does a great job of ensuring the right to vote, but does not address the serious issues election protection advocates have been bringing forward for years, such as counting our votes inside computers with unknown software, the lack of chain of custody of ballots, etc. Would you be open to hearing from election integrity activists about how to address security issues H.R. 1 may exasperate? exacerbate, sorry, such as mailing VBM ballots to everyone and lack of chain of custody? Well, actually, there are um, very significant and robust election security measures in H.R. 1, including requiring all states to have um, a paper ballot trail implemented, um, insisting on lockboxes being deployed for purposes of mail-in voting across the country, protections against hacking, cyber attacks on election infrastructure, protection against foreign interference. So we were very conscious of the need to build that kind of chain of custody and confidence in the ballot so that when people, because people need to know first that they can cast their ballot, but then they need to feel confident that the ballot will be tallied well and that there will be a record, a hard record preserved of their vote um, so that there's, if there's any recounts or audits or other challenges that are made, you have what's there to make sure that voice has been heard. So I actually think that we've done a pretty good job on that front in terms of election integrity and election infrastructure, because as, the, as your, your listeners suggested, it has been a concern for people for many, many years. Uh, So we've got those protections in place and we can continue to build on them as we move forward. Well, Congressman Sarbanes, thank you so much for joining us. I think the most important question that we're going to end on is, can you tell us how our listeners can help make sure that H.R. 1 becomes law? Right now, the most important thing is to educate everyone around you that there is a fix for what ails our democracy. We don't have to go make it up. The product is there. It's built to last. Um, it is H.R. 1, the For the People Act. On the Senate side, it's been given the designation S1. What you can do is share information about this bill. And if you, if you just Google H.R. 1 For the People Act, you're going to find your way to a lot of good information about it. There is a coalition, a national coalition, called the Declaration for American Democracy Coalition. So I encourage people uh, to go to that website. There's a portal uh, which allows you to sign up to help spread the word and support the efforts 
this campaign to get HR1, S1 um, over the finish line. But the most important thing is the next time somebody's complaining to you about the voting problems, the big money, the ethics stuff, you can say there's an answer for that. And it's not burning the system to the ground, which unfortunately is what President Trump always offered as a solution. It's about fixing a broken system so that the voice of everyday Americans can actually be heard again. We have an answer for this. We cannot miss this opportunity. This is the most important and comprehensive set of democracy reforms in a generation. And we're not going to get this chance again for another generation. This is the moment. This is the time. This is the bill. So please get behind this effort. Let's together get it over the finish line. Let's do it. And as always, everyone can follow me and Congressman on Twitter, and we'll be posting information on timelines and what you all can do to help. Thank you again, Congressman. You give me hope. And that's all the time we have for today. Please, let's get this done. Thank you for being here. Uh, Thank you for listening. This is such an important bill. Sorry Not Sorry is executive produced by Alyssa Milano. That's me. Our associate producer is Ben Jackson. Editing and engineering by Natasha Jacobs. And music by Josh Cook, Alicia Eagle, and Milo Bugliari. That's my boy. Please subscribe on Spotify, iTunes, or wherever you get your podcasts. And if you like the show, please rate, review, and spread the word. Sorry.